Section 26 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary the Second, Chapter 4, Part 2. The proceedings of the princess after her retreat are related by an eyewitness, Lord Chesterfield. Of all the contemporaries of James II, he was the least likely to be prejudiced in his favor. He was brought up in companionship with the Prince of Orange, who was reared by his mother, Lady Stanhope, governess to the prince at The Hague. Moreover, Chesterfield had not forgotten his angry resentment at the coquetries of his second wife with James II when Duke of York. The Earl was, besides, a firm opposer of popery and an attached son of the Reformed Church. Every early prejudice, every personal interest, every natural resentment led Lord Chesterfield to favor the cause of the Prince of Orange. He was a deep and acute observer. He had known the Princess Anne from her infancy, being Chamberlain to her aunt, Queen Catherine. Anne's proceedings after her flight from Whitehall are here given in his words. The Princess Anne made her escape in disguise from Whitehall and came to Nottingham, pretending that her father the king did use her ill for her religion, she being a Protestant and he a Papist. As soon as I heard of her coming with a small retinue to Nottingham, I went thither with Lord Ferrers and several gentlemen, my neighbors, to offer her my services. The princess seemed to be well pleased. She told me that she intended to go to Warwick, but she apprehended that Lord Molinux, who was a papist and then in arms, would attack her on her journey. I assured her highness that I would wait upon her till she was in a state of safety. I left her and returned to Nottingham in two days at the head of a hundred horse, with which she seemed to be much satisfied. I met at Nottingham the earls of Devonshire, Northampton, Scarsdale, and Lord Grey, the Bishop of London, and many others, who had brought in six hundred horse, and raised the militia of the country to attend Her Highness. The next day, Her Highness told me that there were many disputes and quarrels among the young nobility around her. Therefore, to prevent disorders in the marching of her troops without precedence, she had appointed a council to meet that day, and me to be of it. I replied, that I was come on purpose to defend her person in a time of tumult with my life against any that should dare to attack her, but that as to her counsel, I did beg her pardon for desiring to be excused from it, for I had the honor to be a privy counselor to his majesty her father. Therefore I would be of no counsel for the ordering of troops which I did perceive were intended to serve against him. I found that her highness and some of the noblemen round her were highly displeased with my answer, which they called a tacit upbraiding them and the princess with rebellion. Chesterfield, nevertheless, escorted the princess Anne from Nottingham to Leicester, but here he found a project afoot, which completed his disgust of the proceedings of the daughter. It was, in fact, no other than the revival of the old association, which had, about a century before, hunted Mary Queen of Scots to a scaffold. If Elizabeth, a kinswoman some degrees removed from Mary Queen of Scots, but who had never seen her, has met with apprehension from the lovers of moral justice for her encouragement of such a league, what can be thought of the heart of a child, a favored and beloved daughter, who had fled from the very arms of her father to join it? 
I waited on Her Highness the Princess Anne to Leicester, resumes Chesterfield. Next morning at court, in the drawing-room, which was filled with noblemen and gentlemen, the Bishop of London called me aloud by my name. He said, that the Princess Anne desired us to meet at four o'clock, the same afternoon at an inn in Leicester, which he named to do something which was for her service. Chesterfield expressed his displeasure at the manner in which he was publicly called upon, without any previous intimation of the matter. Upon which, Lord Devonshire, who stood by, observed, that he thought Lord Chesterfield had been previously acquainted, that the purpose of the princess was to have an association entered into, to destroy all the papists in England, in case the Prince of Orange should be killed or murdered by any of them. An association for the purpose of extermination is always an ugly blot in history. Many times have the Roman Catholics been charged with such leagues, and it is indisputable that they were more than once guilty of carrying them into ferocious execution. But the idea that the father of the Princess Anne was one of the proscribed religion, and that she could be enrolled as the chief of an association for extermination of those among whom he was included, is a trait surpassing the polemic horrors of the 16th century. May this terrible fact be excused, under the plea of the stupidity of Anne, and her utter incapacity for reasoning from cause to effect? Could she not perceive that her father's head would have been the first to be laid low by such an association? If she did not, Lord Chesterfield did. I would not enter into it, he continues, nor sign the paper the Bishop of London had drawn, and after my refusing, Lord Ferrers, Lord Cullen, and above a hundred gentlemen, refused to sign this association, which made the Princess Anne extremely angry. However, I kept my promise with Her Highness, and waited on her from Leicester to Coventry, and from thence to Warwick. Such was the errand on which Anne had left her home. Let us now see what was going on in that home. Great was the consternation of her household at the cockpit, on the morning of November 26th, when two hours had elapsed, beyond her usual time of ringing for her attendance. Her women and Mrs. Danvers, having vainly knocked and called at her door, at last had it forced. When they entered, they found the bed open, with the impression as if it had been slept in. Old Mrs. Buss, the nurse of the princess, immediately screamed out, that the princess had been murdered by the queen's priests. And the whole party ran screaming to Lady Dartmouth's apartments, some went to Lord Clarendon's apartments with the news. As Lady Clarendon did not know the abusive names by which her niece and Lady Churchill used to revile her, she threw herself into an agony of affectionate despair. While Mrs. Buss rushed into the Queen's presence and rudely demanded the Princess Anne of Her Majesty, Lady Clarendon ran about lamenting for her all over the court. This uproar was appeased by a letter addressed to the queen, being found open on the toilet of the princess. It was never brought to the queen, yet its discovery somewhat allayed the storm, which suddenly raged around her, for a furious mob had collected in the streets, vowing that Whitehall should be plucked down and the queen torn to pieces if she did not give up the princess Anne. This letter was published in the Gazette next day by the partisans of Anne, it has been infinitely admired by those who have never compared it with the one she wrote to the Prince of Orange on the same subject. 
the Princess Anne of Denmark to the Queen of James II. Found at the cockpit, November 26th. Madam, I beg your pardon if I am so deeply affected with the surprising news of the princes, that is George of Denmark. Being gone, as not to be able to see you, but to leave this paper to express my humble duty to the king and yourself, and to let you know that I am gone to absent myself, to avoid the king's displeasure, which I am not able to bear, either against the prince or myself, and I shall stay at so great a distance as not to return till I hear the happy news of a reconcilement, and as I am confident the prince did not leave the king with any other design than to use all possible means for his preservation, so I hope you will do me the justice to believe that I am incapable of following him for any other end. Never was any one in such an unhappy condition, so divided between duty to a father and a husband, and therefore I know not what I must do, but to follow one to preserve the other. I see the general falling off of the nobility and gentry, who avow to have no other end than to prevail with the king to secure their religion, which they saw so much in danger, from the violent counsels of the priests, who, to promote their own religion, did not care to what dangers they exposed the king. I am fully persuaded that the Prince of Orange designs the king's safety and preservation, and hope all things may be composed without bloodshed, by the calling of a parliament. God grant an happy end to these troubles, and the king's, that is James II's, reign may be prosperous, and that I may shortly meet you in perfect peace and safety, till when, let me beg of you, to continue the same favorable opinion that you have hitherto had of your most obedient daughter and servant, Anne. One historian chooses to say that Anne had been beaten previously by her stepmother, yet immediately beneath this assertion, he quotes the letter to the queen, ending with this sentence, let me beg of you to continue the same favorable opinion that you have hitherto had of yours, Anne. Now people seldom express favorable opinions of those whom they beat, and still seldomer do the beaten persons wish those who have beaten them to continue in the same way of thinking concerning themselves. It is a curious fact that the Princess Anne should write two letters on the same subject, entirely opposite in profession, convicting herself of shameless falsehood, and that they should both be preserved, for the elucidation of the writer's real disposition. The Princess Anne to the Prince of Orange, the Cockpit, November 18th. Having on all occasions given you and my sister all imaginable assurances of the real friendship and kindness I have for you both, I hope it is not necessary for me to repeat anything of that kind, and on the subject you have now wrote to me, I shall not trouble you with many compliments, only, in short, to assure you that you have my wishes for your good success in this, so just an undertaking, and I hope the prince, that is her husband, will soon be with you, to let you see his readiness to join with you, who, I am sure, will do you all the service that lies in his power. He went yesterday with the king towards Salisbury, intending to go from thence to you as soon as his friends thought proper. I am not yet certain if I shall continue here or remove into the city that shall depend upon the advice my friends will give me, but wherever I am, I shall be ready to show you how much I am your humble servant. Anne. 
a report prevailed among the people in excuse for anne's conduct that her father had sent orders to arrest her and send her to the tower on the previous day but this plea she dared not urge for herself as may be seen in her farewell letter by the perusal of the last quoted letter which was written before the one addressed to the queen all the sentiments of conflicting duties of ignorance and innocence regarding her husband's intention of departure are utterly exploded as for any tenderness regarding the safety of her unfortunate father or pretended mediation between him and the prince of orange a glance over the genuine emanation of her mind will show that she never alluded to king james excepting to aggravate his faults so far from the desertion of the prince of denmark being unknown to her it was announced by her own pen several days before it took place it would have been infinitely more respectable had the prince and princess of denmark pursued the path they deemed most conducive to their interests without any grimace of sentiment as for profaning the church of england for one moment by assuming that devotion to its principles inspired the tissue of foul falsehood which polluted the mind of the princess anne it is what we do not intend to do the conduct of those who were the true and real disciples of our church will soon be shown though a straight and narrow path they trod which led not to this world's honors and prosperity james the second arrived in london soon after the uproar regarding the departure of his daughter had subsided he was extremely ill having been bled four times in the course of the three preceding days which was the real reason of his leaving the army he expected to be consoled by some very extraordinary manifestation of duty and affection from the princess anne and when he heard the particulars of her desertion he struck his breast and exclaimed god help me my own children have forsaken me in my distress still he expressed the utmost anxiety lest his daughter whose state he supposed was precarious should in any way injure herself from that hour james the second lost all hope or interest in his struggle for regality his mind was overthrown in fact civil wars have taken place between kinsmen brothers nephews and uncles and even between fathers and sons but history produces only two other instances of warfare between daughters and fathers and of those instances many a bitter comparison was afterwards drawn james the second himself was not aware how deeply his daughter anne was concerned in all the conspiracies against him he lived and died utterly unconscious of the foul letters she wrote to her sister or of that to the prince of orange announcing to him her husband's flight he expresses his firm belief that she acted under the control of her husband and by the persuasions of lady churchill and lady berkeley with the fond delusion often seen in parents in middle life he speaks of the personal danger she incurred regarding her health in her flight from the cockpit as if it were almost the worst part of her conduct to him the prince of orange moved forward from the west of england giving out that it was his intention to prove a mediator between james the second and his people and inducing many of the loyal subjects of the crown to meet him for that purpose lord clarendon his wife's uncle met him at salisbury where his headquarters were in hopes of assisting at an amicable arrangement prince george of denmark was still with the dutch army to him lord clarendon instantly went the prince asked him news of james the second and then when his princess went away and who went with her of which says lord clarendon 
I gave him as particular an account as I could. Prince George said, I wonder she went not sooner. Lord Clarendon observed, that he wished her journey might do her no harm. Everyone supposed that the Princess Anne was within a few weeks of her accouchment. The next reply of the prince convinced him that this was really a deception, although constantly pleaded in excuse to her father, when he had required her presence at the birth of the Prince of Wales, or any ceremonial regarding the queen. The Princess Anne had actually herself practiced the same kind of fraud, of which she falsely accused her unfortunate stepmother. That accusation must have originated in the capability for imposition, which she found in her own mind. Her uncle was struck with horror when her husband told him that the princess had not been in any state requiring particular care. His words are, This startled me. Good God, nothing but lying and dissimulation. I told him, with what tenderness the king had spoken of the princess Anne, and how much trouble of heart he showed when he found that she had left him. But to this, Prince George of Denmark answered not one word. The Prince of Orange advanced from Salisbury to Oxford, and rested at Abingdon, and at Henley-on-Thames received the news that James II had disbanded his army, and also that the Queen had escaped with the Prince of Wales to France, and that King James had departed December 11th, a few days afterwards, at which the Prince of Orange could not conceal his joy. The Prince of Denmark remained in Oxford to receive the princess, his wife, who made a grand entry with military state, escorted by several thousand mounted gentlemen, who, with their tenants, had mustered in the mid-counties to attend her. Compton, Bishop of London, her tutor, had for some days resumed his old dress and occupation of a military leader, and rode before her with his purple flag. The Princess Anne and her consort remained some days at Oxford, greatly feasted and caressed by their party. Meantime, the Prince of Orange approached the metropolis no nearer than Windsor, for the unfortunate James II had been brought back to Whitehall. The joy manifested by his people at seeing him once more alarmed his opponents. The Prince of Orange had moved forward to Sion House, Brentford, from whence he dispatched his Dutch guards to expel his uncle from Whitehall. It seems, neither Anne nor his son-in-law cared to enter the presence of James again, and they would not approach the metropolis till he had been forced out of it. The next day, the Prince of Orange made his entry into London, without pomp, in a traveling carriage, drawn by post-horses, with a cloak-bag strapped at the back of it. He arrived at St. James's Palace about four in the afternoon, and retired at once in his bedchamber. The bells rang, guns fired, and his party manifested their joy at his arrival, as the Jacobites had done when the king returned. The prince and princess of Denmark arrived on the evening of the 19th of December from Oxford, and took up their abode as usual at the cockpit. No leave-taking ever occurred between the princess Anne and her unfortunate father. They had had their last meeting in this world, spoken their last words, and looked upon each other for the last time, before his reverse of fortune occurred. No effort did Anne make, cherished and indulged as she had ever been, to see her father ere he went forth into exile forever. Yet there had never occurred the slightest disagreement between them, no angry chiding regarding their separate creeds, no offense had ever been given her, but the existence of her hapless brother. Had she taken the neutral part of retirement from the public eye, while he was yet in England, ill, unhappy, and a prisoner. 
her conduct could not have drawn down the contemptuous comment which it did from an eyewitness. King James was carried down the river in a most tempestuous evening, not without actual danger, and while her poor old father was thus exposed to danger, an actual prisoner under a guard of Dutchmen. At that very moment his daughter, the Princess Anne of Denmark, with her great favorite, Lady Churchill, both covered with orange ribbons, went in one of his coaches, attended by his guards, triumphant to the playhouse. It was on the same stormy night that James II escaped from his Dutch guards and withdrew to France. The conduct of the Princess Anne at this crisis is recorded with utter indignation by her Church of England uncle, Clarendon. In the afternoon of the January 17th, I was with the Princess Anne. I took the liberty to tell her that many good people were extremely troubled to find that she seemed no more concerned for her father's misfortunes. It was noticed that, when the news came of his final departure from the country, she was not the least moved, but called for cards and was as merry as she used to be. To this Anne replied, Those who made such reflections on her actions did her wrong. But it was true that she did call for cards then, because she was accustomed to play, and that she never loved to do anything that looked like an affected constraint. And does your royal highness think that showing some trouble for the king your father's misfortunes could be interpreted as an affected constraint? Was the stern rejoinder from her uncle. I am afraid, he continued, such behavior lessens you much more in the opinion of the world, and even in that of your father's enemies, than you ought to be, but, as he in comment, with all this, she was not one jot moved. Clarendon demanded whether she had shown his letter, written to her in his grief, on his son's desertion from her father. The princess said, no, she had burnt it as soon as read. But her uncle pressed the matter home to her, because, he said, the contents were matter of public discourse. The princess replied, she had shown the letter to no one, but she could not imagine where was the harm if she had. I am still of the same opinion as when it was written, observed her uncle. I think that my son has done a very abominable action, even if it be viewed but as a breach of trust. But if your royal highness repeats all that is said or written to you, few people will tell you anything. The princess turned the discourse with a complaint that his son never waited on Prince George, which was more necessary now than ever, since the prince had no one but him of quality about him, that she had reproved Lord Cornbury herself, but he took so little heed of it, that at one time she thought of desiring him to march off and leave room for somebody else, but that, as it was at a time that the family seemed oppressed, she had no mind to do a hard thing. The oppression she meant was when James II had dismissed Clarendon and her other uncle from their employments on account of their attachment to the Church of England. Her uncle dryly returned thanks for her gracious intimation and observed that his son, though he often complained of hardship put upon him, was to blame for neglecting his duty. The princess stated that the prince, her husband, was at a great loss for some person of quality about him, that he had thoughts of taking Lord Scarsdale again, but that he proved so pitiful a wretch that they would have no more to do with him. I asked, said Lord Clarendon, whom he thought to take. The princess said, Sir George Hewitt. 
This, it will be remembered, was the man who had deserted with Lord Churchill and was implicated in the scheme for either seizing or assassinating the king, her father. Lord Clarendon, when he visited the Dutch headquarters, bluntly asked Lord Churchill, whether it was a fact, who, with his usual graceful and urbane manner, and in that peculiar intonation of voice, which his contemporary, Lord Dartmouth, aptly describes as gentle and whining, pronounced himself, the most ungrateful of mortals, if he could have perpetrated aught against his benefactor, King James. To return, however, to Sir George Hewitt. Clarendon observes to the Princess Anne, that he was no nobleman. He might be made one when things are settled, said the princess, and she hoped such a thing would not be denied to the prince her husband and her. I asked her, how could that be done without King James? Sure, replied the princess Anne, there will be a way found out at one time or other. A convention of the lords and some of the members who had been returned in the last parliament of Charles II were then on the point of meeting to settle the government of the kingdom. In this convention, Sancroft, the Archbishop of Canterbury, positively refused to sit or to acknowledge its jurisdiction. The Earl of Clarendon was anxious to discuss with the Princess Anne the flying reports of the town, which declared that the intention was to settle the crown on the Prince of Orange and his wife, but that in case the latter died first, leaving no issue, the crown was to belong to him for his life before it descended, in natural succession, to the Princess Anne and her children. Clarendon was indignant at this proposed innovation on the hereditary monarchy of the British government, and endeavored to rouse the Princess Anne to prevent any interpolation between her and her rights of succession, to which she said, she had indeed heard the rumors that the prince and princess of Orange were to be crowned, but she was sure she had never given no occasion to have it said that she consented to any such a thing, that she had indeed been told that Dr. Burnett should talk of it, but she would never consent to anything that should be to the prejudice of herself or her children. She added, that she knew very well that the Republican party were very busy, but that she hoped that the honest party would be most prevalent in the convention and not suffer wrong to be done to her. Clarendon told the princess that if she continued to be in the mind she seemed to be in, she ought to let her wishes be known to some of both houses before the meeting of the convention. Anne replied, she would think of it and send for some of them. Her uncle then turned upon her with a close home question, which was, whether she thought that her father could be justly deposed. To this the Princess Anne replied, Sure, they are two great points for me to meddle with. I am sorry the king brought things to such a pass as they were at. Adding, that she thought it would not be safe for him ever to return again. Her uncle asked her fiercely the question, What she meant by that? To which Anne replied, Nothing. Without repeating several characteristic dialogues of this nature, which her uncle has recorded, the Princess Anne and her spouse entrusted him with a sort of commission to watch over her interests in the proceedings of the convention. The princess likewise penned a long letter of lamentations to her uncle on the wrongs she found that the convention meant to perpetrate against her. She, however, bade him burn the letter. The postponement of succession to the Prince of Orange supposing the Prince of Wales was forever excluded. 
encroached not much on the tenderness due to that internal idol, self. Very improbable it was that a diminutive asthmatic invalid, like the Prince of Orange, irrepressibly bent on war, ten years of age in advance withal, should survive her majestic sister, who had, since she had been acclimatized to the heir of Holland, enjoyed a buxom state of health. There was, nevertheless, a tissue of vacillating diplomacy attempted by Anne. She used a great deal of needless falsehood in denial of the letter she had written to her uncle when she supposed he had burnt it, and equivocation when he produced it to the confusion of herself and her clique. As some shelter from the awful responsibility perpetually represented to her by her uncle, Anne at last declared, she would be guided regarding her conduct by some very pious friends and abide by their decision. The friends to whom she appealed were Dr. Tollitson and Rachel Lady Russell. Their opinion was well known to the princess before it was asked. Dr. Tollitson had been an enemy to James II from an early period of his career and had been very active in promoting the revolution. As for Lady Russell, it was no duty of hers, but quite the reverse to awaken in the mind of Anne any affectionate feeling to James II. Both referees arbitrated according to the benefit of their party, and advised Anne to give place to her brother-in-law in the succession. Although the Princess Anne had thus made up her mind, the National Convention was far from resolved. The situation of the country was rather startling. The leader of a well-disciplined army of 14,000 foreign soldiers, quartered in or about London, being actually in possession of the functions of government. When the convention had excluded the unconscious heir, it by no means imagined a necessity for further innovating on the succession by superseding the daughters of James II, who had not offended them by the adoption of an obnoxious creed, and well did the clergy of the Church of England know that the creed of the Prince of Orange was as inconsistent with their church as that of James II. Besides that discrepancy, his personal hatred to the rights of our church has been shown by Dr. Hooper, who has, moreover, recorded the vigorous kick he bestowed on the communion table prepared in the chapel of his princess. Some of the members of the convention were startled at the fearful evils attendant on the crown elective, which, as the history of Poland and the German Empire fully prove, not only open doors, but floodgates to corruption." when they subsequently sought the line of Hanoverian princes as their future sovereigns, the English parliament recognized the hereditary principle by awarding the crown to the next lineal heir, willing to conform with and protect the national religion. But when they gave the crown to William III, they repudiated two heiresses who were already of the established church, and thus rendered for some years the crown of Great Britain elective. Before this arrangement was concluded, the Princess Anne began to feel regret for the course she had pursued. Lord Scarsdale, who was then in her household, heard her say, at this juncture, Now am I sensible of the error I committed in leaving my father, and making myself of a party with the prince who puts by my right. While the Princess of Orange rests safely at The Hague, free from the observing eyes and sharp reproofs of her mother's brothers, no evidence exists regarding her personal demeanor there, excepting that she went to public prayers four times every day, with a very composed countenance. She is accused of the awful charge of reproaching her husband sharply by letter, of letting, 
her father go as he did. The letter is not to be found, nor are any of her letters to her husband, before their accession to the throne of Great Britain, forthcoming, and the evidence rests on the hearsay report that one of the Jacobite exiles told to James II. The unhappy father believed it, but the reader ought only to give credit to the horrid imputation, as far as it seems in unison, with the tenor of the rest of her conduct. Our own opinion is, that to write a disproving word to her lord and master, or cast any reproach on his conduct, was more than she dared to do while she was in Holland. Anne Villiers, the wife of Bentick, died just as the Orange Expedition landed at Torbay. The name of this woman had been most odiously implicated, as well as that of her sister, with William of Orange, at a time when the princess was kept almost imprisoned in her apartments. The family compact, who kept guard on her in Holland, headed by her husband's mistress, Elizabeth Villiers, was now reduced to three. Elizabeth herself, Madame Puissard, or Puissère, and Lady Inchiquin. These ladies were with the princess in Holland, while the revolution in England was in progress. The day the throne was declared vacant by the Convention of Parliament, Sir Isaac Newton, then Mr. Isaac Newton, was visiting Archbishop Sancroft. What feeling the great astronomer expressed at the news is not recorded, but the archbishop showed deep concern, and hoped proper attention would be paid to the claims of the infant prince of Wales, saying, that his identity might be easily proved, as he had a mole on his neck at his birth. Perhaps King William was not pleased with the visit of Newton to Lambeth at this crisis, since a tradition is afloat on the sea of anecdotes that some of his council wished him to consult Isaac Newton on a point of difficulty, when the king replied, Pooh, he is only a philosopher. What can he know? The demeanor of William of Orange at this juncture was perfectly inexplicable to the English oligarchy sitting in convention. Reserved as William ever was to his princess, he was wrapped in tenfold gloom and taciturnity when absent from her. The English magnates could not gather the slightest intimation of his mind, while he was wrapped in this imperturbable fit of sullenness. They applied to the Dutchmen to know what ailed their master, and from Fagel and Zulestein they gathered that his highness was afflicted with an access of political jealousy of his submissive partner, whom the convention considered Queen Regnant, for his reply was, that he did not choose to be gentleman usher to his own wife. On the enunciation of this gracious response, the English oligarchy returned to reconsider their verdict. Some deemed that the introduction of a foreigner, the ruler of a country, the most inimical to the English naval power, and to the mighty colonies and trading factories, newly planted by James II in every quarter of the world, was a bitter alternative forced on them by the perverse persistence of their monarch in his unfortunate religion but they were by no means inclined to disinherit Mary, the Protestant heiress, and render their monarchy elective by giving her husband the preference to her. There was a private consultation on the subject held at the apartments of William Herbert at St. James's Palace. William's favorite Dutchmen were admitted to this conclave, which was held round Herbert's bed, he being then confined with a violent fit of the gout. Bentick then and there deliberately averred that it was best only to allow the Princess Mary to take the rank of Queen Consort and not of Queen Regnant. When the gouty patient heard this opinion, he became so excessively excited that, 
Forgetting his lameness, he leaped out of bed, and seizing his sword, exclaimed, That if the Prince of Orange was capable of such conduct to his wife, he would never draw that for him again. The Dutch favorite carried the incident to his master, who was forthwith plunged still deeper in splenetic gloom. When he at last spoke, after a space of several days of profound taciturnity, he made a soliloquy in Dutch to this purport. That he was tired of the English, he would go back to Holland and leave their crown to whosoever could catch it. The behavior of the Prince of Orange, such is the description of Sheffield, Duke of Buckingham, was very mysterious. He stayed at St. James's Palace. He went very little abroad. Access to him was not very easy. He listened to all that was said, but seldom answered. This reservedness continued several weeks. Nobody could tell what he desired. At last, the gracious Duncan spake of his grievances. One day he told the Marquis of Halifax and the Earls of Shrewsbury and Danby his mind in this speech. The English, he said, were for putting the Princess Mary singly on the throne, and were for making him reign by her courtesy. No man could esteem a woman more than he did the princess, but he was made so that he could not hold anything by apron strings. This speech plunged the English nobles into more perplexity than ever, from which, according to his own account, they were relieved by Dr. Burnett. He came forward as the guide of Mary's conscience and her confidant on this naughty point, and promised in her name that she would prefer yielding the precedence to her husband in regard to this succession, as well as in every other affair of life. Lord Danby did not wholly trust to the evidence of Burnett. He sent the Princess of Orange a narrative of the state affairs, assuring her that if she considered it proper to insist on her lineal rights, he was certain that the convention would persist in declaring her sole sovereign. The princess answered, that she was the prince's wife, and never meant to be other than in subjection to him, and that she did not thank anyone for setting up for her an interest divided from that of her husband. Not content with this answer, she sent Danby's letters and proposals to her spouse in England. The National Convention of Lords and Commons then settled that the Prince of Orange was to be offered the dignity of King of England, France, and Ireland, Scotland being a separate kingdom that the princess, his wife, was to be offered the joint sovereignty, that all regal acts were to be effected in their united names, but the executive power was to be vested in the prince. No one explained why the English convention thought proper to legislate for France and Ireland, while at the same time, it left to Scotland the privilege of legislating for itself. The succession was settled on the issue of William and Mary. If that failed, to the princess Anne and her issue, and if that failed, on the issue of William by any second wife, and if that failed, on whomsoever the Parliament thought fit. The Prince of Orange, after his settlement was made, permitted his consort to embark for England. She had been ostensibly detained in Holland, while the succession was contested, by frosts and contrary winds. It is said that Mary was infinitely beloved in Holland, that she left the people all in tears when she embarked, February 10th, to take possession of the English throne. She burst into tears herself on hearing one of the common people express a wish that the English might love her as well as those had done whom she was leaving. The embarkation of the princess took place at the Brill. She had a short prosperous voyage and landed at Gravesend, February 12th. 
the evening when the news arrived in london that the dutch fleet escorting the princess of orange was making the mouth of the thames the metropolis blazed with joyous bonfires notwithstanding his deep enmity to james the second the pope was duly burnt in effigy he was provided with a companion the fugitive father petre these were accompanied by a representative of the rival of the princess of orange in the succession to the british throne even the image of her poor little infant brother the first time perhaps that a baby of six months old was ever executed in effigy many persons have heard that puppets representing the pope and pretender were always consumed on the anniversaries of the revolution but few know how early the latter was burnt in these pageants as a testimonial of respect to celebrate the landing and proclamation of his sister there was observes a french historian of this century prepared aliment to the brutal passions being ignoble representations of the pope father petre and the prince of wales which were thrown into the flames a spectacle agreeable to the multitude no doubt but even political expediency ought not to be suffered to outrage nature there exists a series of dutch medals published under the patronage of william and mary albeit no very liberal fosterers of the fine arts of a peculiar nature unexampled in history the completion of each being an extraordinary event in the annals of numismatics the medals were really metallic caricatures whether meant as such by william and mary or whether the dutch artists they hired to commemorate their triumphs over their father uncle and brother had a strong taste for the ridiculous who can say the williamite and marian medals did not disdain to caricature the unconscious babe whose birth their patrons had slandered and whose infant effigy had been consigned to the flames in their triumphal pageants of extension the opening of a mysterious chest is shown on one of them in it is seen coiled up an infant with a serpent's tail illustrated by a latin motto implying that the child when reared would crest itself into a dragon in another the flight of mary's father is illustrated by his figure flying away with monstrous long strides throwing away a crown and sceptre attended by a jesuit carrying the poor babe whose unwelcome brotherhood to mary had caused the whole commotion the motto to this medal ita misa est is applied rather wittily from the ritual of the mass end of section twenty six end of the lives of the queens of england volume ten by agnes and elizabeth strickland